You're listening to another episode of The Zag. Eric Soap here, excited to have you with us and excited to have 2013 NLC fellow Neil Spears. Besides being a fellow, he's one of our favorite alums, former co-director, longtime board member, and sadly, and you'll hear why in a second, he's a big Dodger fan. It's Wednesday. By the time you hear this, the game will probably be over game two, so forgive all our predictions. There will only be one prediction that matters. But the prediction you should pay attention to right now is you're listening to The Zag. Let's get to it. All right, Neil, what are you, I don't usually start podcasts like this, but what are you wearing right now? Yeah, so uh, I've got my Andre Ethier jersey on. I always wear his because uh, when I left LA for grad school, uh, I uh, went to a Dodgers game as a goodbye, and Andre Ethier hit a walk-off Grand Slam home run. So I felt like uh, he's my guy. I got to wear his jersey now. So as a longtime L.A. person, longtime Dodger fan, what has the last two, three weeks been like for you? I mean, it's been incredible. You know, like my dad uh, my dad tells all these stories, like growing up a Dodger fan. Vince Scully, always in our house, was like uh, the voice of the summer. But uh, it's, been, it's been unbelievable. And so why this is a very tense room is, I don't know if anyone knows this, but I grew up in Houston, Texas, and he's an Astros fan, and they're obviously playing the Dodgers right now. So a painful night last night. We'll see what happens this evening. And, of course, once we get back to Houston, uh, things will always change. But I think just from a national perspective, it makes sense for Houston to win, given the, the challenging last couple of months for the city. I don't understand why L.A. can't wait one more year. You've waited, what, 29? 29 years? I think we're due. We'll find out. We'll see. <laughs> but, yeah, by the time you listen to this, who knows what will happen, who knows how sad I'll be or how sad Neil will be. Um, but I'm glad he's here. I want to talk about a couple different things. So you've been in a, uh, with NLC for a long time, and we're doing final round interviews this coming Saturday. What do you remember about... Uh, the first time as an alum that you participated in NLC alum or NLC interviews for new fellows, what was that experience like? I think the thing that sticks out in my mind the most was just how amazing everyone in the room was. Just seeing from behind the scenes the level of commitment, the kinds of projects, the incredible diversity of people's backgrounds and experiences coming to the table and wanting to be part of this progressive training movement in L.A. really uh, stuck with me. I felt like really honored to be in the room. Yeah, it's an exciting day. So we'll, we'll see what happens this coming Saturday. About 50 awesome progressives are coming through. So yeah. we'll, have, we'll have a good time. Um, I don't think I've talked to you since you got back from your trip to Israel. When did you go and why did you uh, take off there? Yeah, so I was there uh, earlier this fall. I uh, went for a Schusterman Fellowship gathering. Schusterman Fellowship is a, a leadership development program. I was in the first cohort. Uh, it was my fifth trip to Israel, uh, and I went a little early uh, so that I could uh, do some traveling. And one of the things that I did was uh, visit the West Bank. It's my fifth fifth time to Israel, but my first time uh, in the West Bank. Went to Ramallah and to Hebron. Any surprises? What was the most shocking or interesting? Oh man! Thing? I mean, it was uh, it was uh, eye opening in a lot of ways that I expected, and in ways that I didn't expect. I mean, when you talk about the West Bank, uh, the occupation just turned 50 years old this year. Um, and as a you know, Jew growing up in America in the 90s, uh, I think I was told that the occupation looked a certain way or told stories about um, Palestinians. And I knew like, intellectually that those stories were probably false. I didn't realize like how false they were. And in particular, Hebron is a city where uh, the settlements are... Um, right on top of, um, uh, right in the middle of the city. And the security, the Israeli security uh, forces have put a boundary around where the settlements are such that a lot of Palestinians have actually uh, lost their businesses, lost their homes, and it feels like occupation. 
Ramallah, on the other hand, once we got into Ramallah proper and through the Kalandia checkpoint and, 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 and into the part of the city that's um, completely controlled by the Palestinian Authority, the thing that surprised me there was that it felt very normal, actually. Life felt normal. Um, there was uh, life happening all around us, businesses open, no obvious security presence, um, and people were so incredibly warm and welcoming. But it's given me a lot to think about. It's complicated. So how would you describe the view of a progressive Jew right now in America? So if someone is claiming that they're progressive and claiming they're Jewish as well, what does that look like in your estimation? And is it matching up with what people think it should be matching up with? Yeah, um, I think about this a lot because Jews in America are in this uh, interesting position, right? We have um, amassed a tremendous amount of privilege as a group over the past, you know, however many decades. And arguably, until very recently, you could say that uh, Jews in America are the safest um, Jews uh, that have ever lived. And I think you could probably still say that. And white Jews in particular um, have a tremendous amount of, uh, of privilege. We're at the highest, uh, you know, we've reached the highest levels of success in medicine and law and politics. I mean, the mayor of the city is, uh, is a Jew. On the other hand, we also have this incredible history of being oppressed. When we only have to look back to my grandparents' generation, my great-grandparents' generation to see an entire time when, when there was a, a genocide committed against us. Um, and even today, we have a president who is, uh, you know, refuses to condemn anti-Semites who march without hoods in the United States of America. And so we, J Jews and progressive Jews are, are, are struggling, I think, to hold these two pieces, right? That, that we, especially as white Jews, have a tremendous amount of privilege. And we're also under threat with anti-Semitism. How do we respond to that? I think that's a key question facing us. And I think that we have a couple of options. One, we could turn into ourselves, right? Turn inward and say, this is a very scary time. Look at all those anti-Semites, the, the, the Nazis marching in Charleston. Like we have to buckle down and be insular and use all of our privilege to fight for ourselves. That's one option. Another option is we can say, look, we are under threat, but so are immigrants. So are Muslims, so are people of color, so are queer people, especially trans folk. How can we, as a group that understands both uh, oppression and privilege, use our privilege in coalition with others to make real change? And I think that's the, the, the challenge and the task that faces progressive Jews here today. And then where do you see the debates, differences in opinion fall in the Jewish community? Is it typically around geography, where you live in the country, is around age, is around gender, like where, where do you see some of the tensions happening? I mean, look, over 70% of Jews in America voted for Hillary Clinton, right? Now, that actually kind of scares me. That's not 100%, but there are some divisions. And I'll tell you, the thing that scares me the most right now is actually how easy it seems for Jewish institutions to ignore what's happening in, uh, in this country and ignore also what's happening in Israel. I think that it's easy, easier to turn inward, it's easier to turn a blind eye than it is to actually figure out, okay, like how do we work in coalition with our Muslim brothers and sisters, with people of color, um, you know, where are we in the, in the fight for racial justice? Those are not easy topics. They're not topics that raise synagogues money. And so that's, I think, the divide, the people who are willing to look truth in its face and unabashedly say, what's happening in this country right now is bad for Jews, but it's also bad for everyone, mm -hmm. and those who would rather not talk about it. Hmm. 
And then how do you reconcile, this is from my perspective, so I'm not Jewish and outside and, and find this, this issue in this debate. It seems like whenever there's uh, the phrase criticism of Israel mm-hmm. is frequently bandied about as reason to shut down a conversation, shut down an argument. How do you advise folks to navigate through being self-critical about policies in Israel, uh, but at the same time being supportive of Israel? Because it doesn't seem like not everyone believes you can do those two things at the same time. Yeah. It's, um, this is the third rail of, of Jewishness right now, right? Like you, this is, um, this conversation on Israel quickly gets you branded as either pro-Israel, whatever that means, or anti-Israel. And there are extremists who have, I think, taken over the conversation on both sides when most mainstream American Jews are somewhere in the middle, right? Loving Israel, but also really having problems with the occupation or really having problems with um, seeing the occupation as a threat to Israel's survival and success. So I think the tips that I think about are um, to have the conversation, to have the courage to have the conversation, and to hold all of the nuance and um, complexity that's within it. This is not easy conversation to have over the Thanksgiving dinner table or the Passover dinner table or whatever it may be. But the cost of not having the conversation means that we're supporting the status quo. And that, I think, is contrary to Jewish values. And it's not who, who Jews are. We need to step into the conversation, even though it's hard and, and, um, and difficult. And then what one or two factors do you feel like in your upbringing led you to this approach to being Jewish and to being progressive? Was there one person? Was there your family? How would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a gay Jew who grew up in an interfaith family in San Bernardino, California, where there are very few Jews. Close right? elites. Very <laughs> no, Tim, you know, there, was, there were two Jews in my giant public high schools, me yeah. and Tammy Rothstein, that was it. Right? <laughs> like, statistically, I should not be, like, a, a committed Jew that I am. Right. Why, how did I end up this way? Um, I had a bunch of folks, especially in college, uh, who, who, who taught me the beauty of the core Jewish narrative, which is that we were once slaves in Egypt. That means that we have tasted the bitterness of slavery. We know what that felt like. And we've also tasted the incredible um, amazingness that is liberation, right? We've gone from darkness to light, from, from narrowness to incredible possibility. And that means that, number one, like incredible miracles are happen, are possible, right? Like what, what is true today in this crazy world does not have to be true tomorrow. That's number one. And number two, because I have felt that bitterness of slavery, other people's suffering, other people's oppression is my business. And it is my responsibility as a Jew to uh, root that out at its systemic levels. That's, I don't know, I, I've fallen in love with that story and uh, uh, that central narrative. It gives my life meaning, it propels my work, um, and it, it, it's what really is at the root of my, my progressiveness. And then what kind of, if I can say it, what kind of synagogue do you go to in LA? What's yeah. it like? Where's what part of the city is it? Yeah. So uh, again, like uh, I'm a millennial, right? I'm I'm 33 years old. I should not be like quote a member of a synagogue <laughs> statistically, but I am. I, I'm a, I'm a member of ECAR, which is a Jewish community here in Los Angeles that is really founded, uh, really the fusion of Jewish ritual and Jewish text and Jewish story interacting with. Um, how we can make this world a better place and actually using our tradition and our ritual to fuel our fire to, to, um, to take action in this world um, and, to, and to make ourselves better people. So we've on, got... Are they on Snapchat? Uh, I don't know if they're on Snapchat. It's, 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 it's <laughs> ecar-la.org. 
Uh, we've got some phenomenal rabbis who, uh, who are not afraid of the difficult conversations. In fact, Rabbi Sharon Brous, who's one of our rabbis, uh, did a, a sermon on Rosh Hashanah this year. This is the, one of the holiest days of, of the Jewish calendar on why Jews should support reparations oh, wow. for black Americans for slavery. How did that go over? I mean, I loved it personally. And I love that, you know, I'm part of a community that is, again, looking at our privilege and leveraging that in, in community with others who, um, who, who face even more oppression than, than we face. Uh, it's on YouTube. It's phenomenal. I recommend the listeners to check it out. I like it. I also recommend you sticking around. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to Neil about his actual job being in the education sphere as a former teacher. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Zag. All right, Neil, have you experienced this phenomenon? So you and I are both former teachers here in L.A. Um, we're both working in out-of-classroom roles now. Uh, you're in the ed tech space and education and technology. Uh, I feel like I've run into more and more ed tech bros is the phrase that I would <laughs> use. And it's a phenomenon where you have folks, maybe they're former teachers, maybe not, who have, I think, the same principles within LE that you would apply to starting an app or starting a company, but then trying to do it in an education space. So like a lot of kind of hustler vibe to it, a lot of comfort with like failing fast and weird market share talk and and just things that I don't feel like can fit in education. Is that something that's happening in your world as well? Because you, uh, at Power of My Learning, where you work, that's what you guys are, are talking the most about is technology and kids and families. Yeah, I, I, I definitely know exactly what you're talking about. Um, look, at Power of My Learning, our big focus is on relationships between parents and students and families and how technology can enhance the learning relationships among students, teachers, and families. I think that that philosophy is really informed by like the fact that we have a ton of former teachers on our team. Mm -hmm. Like we have a bunch of folks who've actually done this work, who've actually been in schools, in under-resourced communities, and, and who understand the reality on the ground. Like we know from our own experience that there's no app that is going to fix everything. And I, I mean, I wish, I, I wish there was, but there's not. That's why we've got to focus on the people and using the technology that exists to bring those people closer to each other, the students, the teachers, and the families. Uh, that's the purpose of tech. The thing that gets me uh, uh, sometimes a little upset is when tech entrepreneurs who maybe have not had any experience as teachers or working in schools, especially schools uh, where students have the most need, come with an idea and, um, and, 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 and pitch it in such a way that it's going to fix it all. Like, if only this app, if only this program, if only this platform. That's just not realistic. And it strikes me as a little bit of um, people parading in on their, on their horses thinking they know everything when, when they don't. And I'm not saying that about every entrepreneur, right? There are plenty of founders of uh, tech products and out there that have not been teachers themselves but have surrounded themselves and filled their teams with people who are former teachers. Um, and there are ways we definitely need outside voices in this conversation. We definitely need the spirit of entrepreneurship because educational equity is a big nut to crack. Uh, but it does... Um, sometimes concern me to see the amount of capital that's being poured into EdTech. And I ask, why? Are we really trying to create equity? Are we trying to create profit margins? I don't necessarily think that those two things are mutually exclusive, but we cannot just pour money into EdTech without thinking about why we're doing it. How are we helping people get closer together? How are we enhancing relationships? And how are we making sure that the products we're building are actually giving all kids better opportunities? and not exacerbating the opportunity gaps that exist uh, in the current system. Yeah, because I feel like a lot of the 
conversation has shifted to phrases like 21st century learning skills or you know, blended learning or whatever is going to come after blended learning. And I think you're seeing in more resource communities, school is trying to push even further and further into uh, super tech-heavy schools or very personalized learning schools where maybe a kid walks into a school, looks up on a big flat-screen TV, grabs his or her Chromebook, looks what assignments are happening that day, and then the teacher is a quote-unquote guide or sort of chaperoning them through the experience. Uh, and I guess that's great to some degree, and a part of me feels like well, actually it would be great too if a school like that existed in the middle of South Central or in East LA. Um, do you see that as a realistic goal? Like, should we be shooting forward super tech-heavy, weird, forward-thinking, no-grade-level type schools uh, in, in all communities, or do we then put at risk uh, the kids we're trying to help because it's so weird and kooky that no one actually ever learned how to read, and they just actually know how to do weird tech stuff. Like, what's your opinion, having seen so many schools and so many people trying to help? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. It reminds me of um, uh, a survey that I read relatively recently that showed that parents' attitudes about standardized tests is highly correlated to their socioeconomic status. Hmm. So you see parents in higher socioeconomic uh, neighborhoods saying, "No, we're overtested. Too many tests. Stop standardized tests." Then you see parents in lower socioeconomic uh, context saying, actually, I need to know where my kid is because my kid needs to get ahead. So you test that kid. You share those results with me because I need to have a measuring stick to get my kid to where he or she needs to be. I think we see, I think that's that's a, a sideways way of answering your question, which is that I, I think that there are, there's not a one size fits all. Like we can't take um, uh, one school and put it anywhere, uh, one school model and make it for everyone because kids are different. I do think that there are incredible um, opportunities to do more than what we've been doing for the students who need it most. And I think a, a very promising um, concept is personalization, right? Personalized learning, like what you're describing where kids come in, they have their own plan, they know where to be and how to get there is super important. And that's going to lead to students mastering content. But we also, in that, have to make sure that we're not turning kids into automatons. I think this has been the dangerous thing that's happened with a lot of interact, a lot of um, interventions in uh, schools and under-resourced communities. Like we've seen this with the no excuses model of charter schools, right? Where maybe it's an, an intervention that has a good intention, but has the outcome of actually stripping kids of their ownership, stripping kids of their own initiative. Um, and so, part of what we do at Power My Learning that I love is we're focusing not just on the own, uh, not just on mastery. Right, and not just on getting kids where they need to be, but also saying, do kids know where they are, where they need to be, and how to get there? Are we building digital tools that are actually enhancing their ownership, that are treating them as whole kids? Because that's, I think, going to be that's as close as to a, a framework to a, to a universal solution that I can come up with. Do you think if you went back to the classroom, it'd be any good? Man, I think about because how long did you left and what what year did you leave? So I started teaching ten years ago. Two thousand seven was my first yeah, year in the classroom. I left in. And I, uh, I, I taught two years, and then I got laid off in 2009. Um, I've been out of the classroom ever since. Uh, every time I go into a classroom, I want to go back. I mean, even just this Saturday, we were at one of our Power My Learning family workshops. I, I, I step in the classroom, I want to go back. Would I be any good? Yes, and here's why. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the things I've learned about teaching um, as I've gotten, uh, as I've grown as a person, is how personal it is. This is not knowledge in my head goes into knowledge in students' head, close the book, call it a day. Like this is about helping young humans grow and turn into the people we need them to be in this society, in this country, and getting to know them and their needs and understanding better the systems they operate in, which 
here, especially in uh, high needs communities, is a system that's filled with racism, that's filled with discrimination. Um, we need to understand that and treat kids as, the, as their whole selves. As I've become more awake in this world, I think that that's something that would make me a much better teacher now than I was when I started 10 years ago. You think you'd be able to stand up by the end of the day? <laughs> I hope so, man. I, oh, I'm so out of like teacher shape. If I, you know, after 30 minutes, an hour of even leaving PD sessions for adults, I was like, it's how a, do it, I ever do this for all those teaching years? Teaching is a hard job. Yeah. It's teaching a hard job. I think about that a lot when like, um, like in progressive circles, we talk a lot about education, right? And education is one of those issues that actually really divides progressives. Yeah. And I think that, um, again, uh, like when you've done it, when you've been there, you realize it is hard work. It is, it is complicated, um, difficult work. Yeah. Well, shout out to all our NLC educators and everyone else for listening to this podcast. It's been another episode of The Zag. Thanks for joining us. You can find all episodes, and there's a lot now, which is exciting, in the iTunes store, Google Play, SoundCloud, and on our website. Stay tuned. More podcasts coming next week. Go Astros. Go Dodgers. All right. We'll talk to you later. <laughs>